I've been on 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 a few papers where the, the names are a little a little bit on the ethnic side, and uh, and they've said please have a native speaker to proofread the paper. <laughs> what? Yeah, knife to the heart. Oh my god! Ah, uh, see, when I say things like that, I'm definitely, definitely joking. When they say things like that, it is not the same. Hello and welcome to another episode of Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo and I'm here with James Heathers from Northeastern University. No, How are you going, James? Name, my name is Daniel Quintana and I am from the University of Oslo. You are a we, homeless man it around. Who, who, who wandered in front of an internet-capable camera and for some reason has unduly sophisticated recording equipment. Hi! <laughs> Is, is that how we're doing it today? Oh, it. I have absolutely no idea, man. I'm, uh, I've, I've, I'm fried. I'm working on my first ever section for an R01. Otherwise, can, no can one you, has Can the, you explain uh, what that is to the non-US uh, listeners? Yeah, I was just about to. Thanks very much for fucking with my chi. Um, an R01 is a very large NIH grant. The uh, every every country has a central scientific body, and every central scientific body has major grant schemes. And this is very definitely the first major grant scheme I've ever had to prepare something for, and it is punishing. You don't get any idea writing a small grant how much rubbish goes into a big grant. Oh wow! Um, yeah, it's um. It's less cool than I thought it would be, and I expected it to be hard. So, I'm not obviously preparing the whole thing because it, it's largely other people's research that's stacked up into stacked like cordwood in various sections. But I'm contributing in some meaningful sense to several of the sections. So, yeah, you want a possibility to pull your hair out, overthink things, and generally think that you would be better off born as a water bug or perhaps some form of slime mold, and RO1 is your jam. How are you? How are you? I, I'm preparing for fatherhood. Any day now, new uh, new Quintana baby will be coming. Um, so, yeah, that's super, super exciting. I hate of course, the, yeah, look, I hate the, the non-planning aspect of this. Why don't you just go to the hospital on the day and pinch one? I mean, all Norwegians look the same. Why couldn't you just borrow someone else's? <laughs> And look, I've got enough. I've got, I got enough oxytocin in the lab to um to just to get the, to get the birth going. Oh, you should definitely means. try that. Or maybe not everyone <laughs> shares my approach to um unauthorized medical experimentation. That's just a point that's been made before. Expected birth arrival dates are a lie unless you have it induced. Um, yeah, it is. It's it's a normal distribution. Yeah, yeah. It's like saying women have a, a, a sorry thing on Twitter the other day, and some guy was insisting to a woman that she like, oh, periods happen every twenty eight days. Motherfucker, periods happen somewhere between sort of like two and a half and five and a half weeks. So you wouldn't pick a, a woman individually and insist that you know more than she does. So that was <laughs> that was unusual. But yeah, as a, as as per usual, both good examples of people's uh, repeated ability to take a central tendency and then assume that it holds for everyone. It's a mm. little bit like uh, insisting you've got to eat more vegetables because the epidemiologists say so. No, seriously, you should eat more vegetables. I'm about partially sarcastic. You know? He's like, yeah, that's that's mm. definitely true if you bring 10,000 of your best friends. That's what I always tell undergraduates. And then they sit there and go, I only have two friends and I'm not sure if they like me. And then all of us are sad. We we've gotten a few good uh, questions in both we uh, Facebook, have. yeah, Facebook, Twitter. People are um, using all the mediums to get in touch with us, and yeah. um, so we're, we're going to be answering episode. them today. It's questions episode we are. day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be all questions. It's all the, the the agenda. The agenda is set by you, the people. In our yeah. podcast, where one of us is a socialist, we are pursuing the socialist <laughs> agenda of topical choice. We'll see how it works. Why don't you kick us off with the first question, James? All right. Hey, guys, or Guy and Dan, 
I know you've talked a bit about conferences in the past, <laughs> but wondered if you had any thoughts and tips for choosing conferences to attend as a PhD student. Good question. Obviously, it depends a lot on circumstances. On one hand, my experience in the past is it great to break out of your own little world and find out what else is going on. And of course, it's great to present ideas to other strangers. If you're lucky, you get some fresh insight, inspiration, etc. On the other hand, I'm a bit worried about sinking too much time and money traveling and preparing presentations at the expense of collecting data and writing papers. So any advice about navigating these trade-offs? How many are to attend? Go for one or two big ones or more local ones. Try to attend something a little left field or even just good resources for discovering what's coming up where this year would be great. Cheers. Good question. This is a really good question. And uh, I think, uh, of course, this is going to the, the response is going to vary from field to field. So I think in that case, it's actually really important to chat to other people within your field, people who might be more senior in your lab or just other colleagues in your lab who have been to these conferences because it's very easy to go to uh, to go to a dud conference and and you've uh, you've wasted your money so- sometimes it's the department's money sometimes it's your money by the sounds of this question um, it seems like um, this person is actually going to be dipping out of their own pocket to go to a conference Ooh. which is um, interesting in itself mm. okay uh, yeah so um, I think when it comes to um, what to what to attend? Uh, I mean, and personally, I like to actually go for the one big international one um, and one of the local ones, just to mix it up a bit. Um, the just yeah, you just want to make sure, and the, the big ones are great because a lot of your a lot of your collaborators are already going to those ones, um, and it's just a good way to catch up and hear what is going on in your field. But uh, what about you, James? What do you reckon? Okay, the first thing you need to do is. Hit the tubes. You need to get on the tubes now. Go to your university and department website and find out how much money they will give you. Do not confine this search to your internal department circumstances. There may be broader university-wide schemes that no one's heard about. Look for... Early career travel support is pretty common in a lot of places to support junior people to come to conferences. Go looking for travel support specifically on individual conference websites once you've figured out any conference where you may even vaguely be concerned. Uh, go into Trielect and any other aggregator for grant schemes, fellowships, etc. and see what travel awards they have available. Now, responses to these things are variable. Some are super oversubscribed. Some, they're walking around with an envelope of cash in the corridor going, are there any young people who want some money? It varies <laughs> very. It, it varies a great deal between uh, conferences and circumstances. But the first thing that you can do is not start paying 17% for you to go to a conference in the first place. That is the... That, that, that's the point in time where you need to start making strategic decisions once someone isn't because uh, no 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 senior person who's no senior person who's going on is paying for this shit no. um, this is also I mean I don't know where you're from but if you're from Europe most places are they ha- they're relatively generous with conference funds in a lot of uh, different European countries also for the simple reason that there's 1200 million people in Europe they expect conferences to be local and that means that they are shit easy to get to when I was in Poland, we went to a local conference in Germany. How did we get there? We drove. You just go. Uh, it becomes a little bit different when, you know, you're in Lancashire and the conference is in San Diego. Then, you know, you have to then you have to pick up, pick up thy, uh, what is it? Pick up thy bedroll, pick up thy sack and walk. My biblical illusions <laughs> are not what they were. Okay. Um some fields have got kind of red line conferences where every motherfucker goes. Yeah? So it's not mandatory as much as there's a community of people that centered around a conference who are the people who make decisions have uh, various uh, forms of influence over the, the field more broadly. Like Envision VSS, for instance. Now, I know Vision's not a super big topic, but everyone I know who works in Vision's always going, who's going to VSS this year? It's never a matter of screw that or that isn't happening or I don't have time. It's always in terms of the baseline expectation is that you go and then we work Mm. from that basis. So that's 
that counts for a great deal when it comes to being a member of a community. Uh, at least it does if you're capable of going out and smacking heads and making yourself a member of a community. Um, how's that so far, Dan? Have I said anything that qualifies me to be forced through a fine mesh screen? Well, that makes sense to me, but I think um, when it comes to actually Good. checking the che- checking the awards from the conferences, quite often they require you to apply ridiculously ahead of time. So, don't think about it when you see um, the conference coming up in a few months. Um, just e- even keep an eye out for the next cycle um, because um, then then from there you'll need to apply quite early. And uh, one of the other things that uh, that was asked within this question was whether you should actually go to conferences at the expense of collecting data. Uh, oh, another way cheer of- up. Three, four days. How, how much? How much are you going to get done? This is like everyone. Everyone above the rank of assistant professor here is perpetually away all the time. Come on, it's it's a couple of it's a couple of days. It's just you're going to end up working around it anyway. Half the people at that conference are going to be picking away at stuff in their hotel room or answering email during session or writing on the plane. I've written a lot of good things on plane simply because what else are you going to do? The only problem mm. I have is fitting in the seat and doing the little T Rex arms on the laptop. <laughs> so a lot of the time, I actually take a pad and paper and start working on something new. So, it's not, it's not, I mean, you're going to be having ideas when you're there anyway, hopefully. So, don't, um, yeah, this is, it's not, it's not some dead time period I should be doing other stuff. That feels to me more like work anxiety than it does sort of, oh no, I'm having a huge amount of time taken out of my life, i.e., yeah, look, getting the flu and being bedridden for two weeks is taking out too much time. Going to a three or four day conference with a little bit of travel time. Where you you're talking shop anyway and trying to stay in contact, you know, I don't think you're losing enough time to worry about that. Not unless you've got some mm. serious motherfucking deadlines. Yeah, yeah. Then 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 there's uh, other stuff going on if you can't afford to take three days off. Um, yeah, but if you're uh, a PhD and I- <laughs> student and you can't afford to take three days off in a row, there is definitely other stuff going on. Um, yeah, painful stuff. And th- there was stuff. there was there was a interesting follow up to um to uh, I-, I put it in a response there but there was an interesting follow up about uh, networking and uh, and people asking questions during seminars in conferences, which I think is um is essentially useless really. Um, I like getting asked. <laughs> I-, I like question and answer time during poster sessions because it's usually one on one, um, and it's usually a genuine question that you want to know. Whereas um, I, do, I see Q&As, especially during big symposia, as uh, it's essentially peacocking. It's announcing to the crowd. And you know they're announcing to the crowd when they actually introduce their name and institution and they're saying, I am here, Professor Smith from Fancy University, and I have a question for you, which is um, really just a way of, uh, you know, showing off their own research. So yeah, oh, yeah. Do you, know, do you know what this you know the in one. Contact, you, you know what this does go? Actually, it's more of a comment, really. Yeah. <laughs> Shut the fuck up then with your comment. It's just the even even if it's a dreadful presentation, what about just a little bit of baseline respect for the fact that their agenda is at work because they're speaking? I'll tell you what really chafes my left ball in particular. When there's a relatively junior researcher, an ECR, who's a woman who presents something and then a guy who's about 405 years old stands up and goes, "Ah, let me tell you a story, you pretty little thing about my day. And you just want to hit him with a fucking chair. Ah, and they're like, oh, no, no, this is, this is a hypothetical story. I have seen that happen in that exact configuration at least, uh, I can recall two from one conference and I'm certain it's happened one other time. So at least three times in my experience. And I think everyone in the hall was a bit sort of, oh, for fuck's sake, this is why they say we have gender problems in science. Look at this silly old bastard. But you know you can't go. You, you, that's it's not a. You can't argue the toss at that particular point in time. If you want to make it even more fucking awkward for anyone, you just wait until he's finished speaking, and then the, the woman nods her head and goes, "That's a really interesting point," and then ignores everything he said because he's a <laughs> fucking daft old pedant. Um, 
Yeah, I got a, I got a, I got a lot of respect in my heart today, Dan. I'm bringing respect to the table here. You what are. are you, what are you bringing to the table? Um, <laughs> not, you're not wearing nothing a mustard-coloured shirt. I mean, we're talking about talking about things here that are socially awkward. Seriously, you look like you should be in a jar what's, with Dijon what's, written what's, on the outside. What's, what's wrong? What's wrong? <laughs> what's wrong with my hoodie? They, they, they are, they are, a, they are big on that's my- a hoodie. That's a hoodie. Jesus Christ! You look like an ill sperm with the hood up. There, um, yeah, we can uh, we can put the hood up. No, <laughs> look, it doesn't go over your forehead. <laughs> look, blah. <laughs> look, they're, they're they're big on mustard here, so I'm just trying to fit in. Oh, I love mustard. They do have a point. Anyway, go on. Sensible, sensible. Yes. Um. Look. Um. Before we go to our next question, um, we we've got a, a lot of really good feedback from our last episode with Chris Chambers about registered reports. Um, a lot of people were sharing the episode on Twitter. Um, and, um, yeah, people were just saying how they actually saw there was a bit of hope. There's a bit of hope when it comes to science because we, we can look at the replication crisis thinking it's all over, um, you know, <laughs> what are we doing? But actually hearing hearing, um, hearing Chris's um, proposal, well, his r- registered reports and how he was putting it forward, a lot of people were getting back to us going, that was um, saying they really enjoyed the episode. Um, so if you haven't had a chance to listen oh, yeah. to it, um, Go back into into the archives. And speaking of of archives, we had a few people who have contacted us, letting us know that they've actually had binge sessions, or they've had the, they've gone to the trouble of listening to every single Hertz episode, oh, even the early ones, even the ones where I was chewing. The ch- oh, the infamous chewing episode. Ah, oh, yeah. People like, went right the way through that. Is uh, occasionally when I, I have one of my sort of monthly bouts of social awkwardness that goes for about two minutes and thirty seconds. I, I think of going back and editing the mouth sounds out of that episode. Um, and then, of course, I get over it completely and realize that it's part of a learning experience. But people are out there listening to that shit and like the working their way back. From scratch. That's incredible. What do we... I mean, yeah, we haven't listened to all of it and we were there, so... Yeah. What 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 are we what are we what are we gonna do? I we've made a I've made a a a unilateral decision and it goes like this. Anyone who's done this, anyone who's done this gets a a, gets a a free hit question. And it can be it can be anything from what is your favorite incarnation of the Incredible Hulk? Um, don't actually pick that one. I don't have one. It's from a Stuart Lee routine. I always found it funny that he had an answer to that. Um, but you know, it could be a serious scientific question as well. But if you're going to go around doing things like Um, that. But believe it or not, I I shared an office with, um, with James for three years. So, you you can ask me anything. Oh, yeah. Well, I just said it's a free hit. Speaking of- that's on the table. Speaking of um, sharing an office, I actually saw that someone has come out with an invention of the um, the the desk bike, which is something that you you invented about ten years ago from a from a, a bike you found at a tip and a, and a bit of gaff tape that that you no, that you jimmied up not, together. That's not that's not very fair. Um, it was I, I I was actually cut down properly and it was uh, reconfigured and welded back together and it was uh, yeah it was extremely funny. It didn't have enough resistance. I never got around to putting brakes on it. <laughs> um, I, think, I think that was awesome because every single desk bike I see, I'm like, no, nah, it's too big. The the Heather's version was much more compact. Yeah, it was. I mean, it had to fit under a desk, Dan. So, yeah. I mean, there's not actually a lot of clearance under the desk, especially when your knees are going up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, how did you solve that? Because oh, you did. Yeah. I made it very, Look. very low to the ground, as might be expected. And the uh, Let's, the, uh, the, 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 the cranks were at the center of the, the front cog, obviously. And that was a long way in front of the wheel. So, the wheel was further to the back. If we can find a picture of the uh, the old desk bike, we'll, we'll post it in the show notes or post it on the old Twitter. But, uh, um, okay, where did the hell did that come from? God, you're weird. Um, we were saying no. I saw, the- I saw, I saw, I saw desk bike on Twitter. I'm like, they've stolen bloody Heather's idea. But Dad, um, I see things all the time that I don't mention out of context. Do you want to? That, do you wanna, that can- was incredibly in context, James. We're, talk- no. we're talking about um, the, the the weird few years I spent sharing an office with you. I never had the desk work at work. <laughs> you did. You brought it in. How would I have seen it? Oh, that's a very good you, point. Um, you absolutely. Yeah. 
I, I, I didn't go knocking about your house. No, that well, that was that was a death trap. I, I wouldn't have done that either. Yeah, but I, you you brought you brought it into work. You 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 were so impressed with yourself. You're like, damn, look what I made. Yeah, it took a while. Yeah, it was there and it was good. But we're, we're getting we're getting a bit off track. Um, people who have gone through and we're going by the honor code here. People who have gone through and uh, and listened to all the episodes get a free hit and a free question. One person that is Peta is Saga has taken advantage of that. And asked us a question. Well, actually, What's- I harassed him until he said, until he said he had a question, and then he put an <laughs> IKEA desk together, and then he wrote it down for me. Now, this is this is a, a good question, but it's mighty. I'm going to read it out. I'm going to read it out very fast. So, anyone who's ESL, uh, apologies in advance. And uh, I can't do his accent because I don't know what he sounds like. I'm assuming it's hilarious, but um, I'm going to leave the, 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 the impression off the table because I can't read it that fast. Okay, are we ready? Of course we are. The thing I've been wondering about since the second year of my bachelor's degree is how much reading one pr- should prepare to do to effectively keep up with the field one works in. I consider myself a fairly slow reader. Oh. And I constantly feel like there are 10 papers I should read for every one that I do read. I used to think this was a personal problem, but lately I'm hearing more and more senior scientists complain that there is too much research being published. I am even fairly sure I heard a call for only publishing one paper a year as a way to Ooh, solve overproduction of scientific output. Yeah, I'm pretty sure um, we, we took care of that in a previous episode. We did. If you yeah. listen to them carefully, Peter, you wouldn't would have to mention that. <laughs> I personally maybe, maybe think he wasn't re- a research fool. production is a good thing. I would not slow it down, but I think we're hampered by the fact that current research curation was designed for scholarly production rates of the 1800s. Uh, still the standard end byproduct of most projects. You have previously mentioned some of your strategies for staying updated on the new literature. I would be extremely interested in hearing your thoughts on how much reading you guys do to stay on top of your fields and your reading strategies. Dan, go. Okay, uh, I'll do a few things. Um, I use a few services on Twitter. Um, people tend to share sensible papers on Twitter. And rather than actually spending all my time on it, what I do is there's a thing called Nuzzle where you sign up for it for free. And yeah. if a few of your... Yeah, Nuzzle. But that, that, that's the name. We'll, we'll Show post us it. your Nuzzle, Dan. Yeah, Nuzzle. And what it does is if, uh, if more than a few of your friends or people you follow on Twitter are tweeting about the same link... Um, you can um, actually log into the app and it'll tell you that over the past 12 hours, a lot of people are talking about this particular thing. So, if there's a good paper that people are talking about, uh, that's an easy way to find it. Um, also, just flicking through Twitter, uh, Twitter, flicking through Twitter. Twitter uh, <laughs> I've, uh, I, I use another service called Pocket, um, which is basically a bookmarking service. Um, and within that, um, it uh, works very well with both Android and iPhone, and it's very easy to save articles for later. So, rather than favoriting a tweet, which I do for a whole manner of reasons, I save it to, I save it to Pocket. Um, and then within that, I can actually go back and do that. Um, I, I got a bit of a train commute to get from the lab to home, and I usually use that as, uh, as, as usually reading time um, to catch up on papers. I'd like to do more of it, um, but... Um, yeah, and you know, strangely enough, um, reviewing papers actually forces me to read papers because sometimes someone will say something, and I'm like, "That doesn't seem right," or they'll say something, and I'm like, "That is really interesting." So that'll actually force me to dive into the literature. So by putting my hand up to do reviews, that's one way of actually keeping up um, with the literature. Because obviously, I'm only agreeing to review stuff that I'm interested in and have some form of expertise in. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I get this idea that there's too much literature out there. Um, but uh, if you have good curation either by uh, um, uh, search alerts, PubMed, Google Scholar, and um, just people you follow on Twitter or on social media, um, or Facebook groups are a good way of actually figuring out what people are interested in at the moment, um, then that is the way to go. How about you, James? How do you tackle this kind of stuff? One of the things that's made this possible uh, for me is I think you are going to say three things in order. First of all, you, you do have to accept the fact that you can't read everything. Everything that's immediately relevant to your field is 
a step too far. Everything that is potentially interesting or peripherally relevant, and this, uh, when you start doing analytical sorts of work, this becomes everything. This becomes lots and lots and lots of stuff. You start reading papers on algorithms and statistical mechanics and methodology before you're even looking at the ideas that you would generally read those papers in order to deploy as research. So the first thing you need to figure out is what does and does not need to be read. There's a point in which you have to say this is necessary versus this is merely something that I'm interested in. Now, there's a variety of ways of doing that. One is figuring out which individual researchers are mandatory when new things happen. And who also, and the converse of that, you think is adult and a ruiner and a bastard and you have absolutely no time for whatsoever. You might use different language, but the outcome is essentially the same. There's people who, there's people whose work you need to know and there's people whose work will make you say, can I have my 20 minutes back, please? Um, once you have a better idea of how that works, then... The flood of new research is a lot easier. The second thing is existing existing research goes back much, much deeper and much, much broader, obviously, than something that was published in the last week. If you are reading in the sense that I need to be in command of a topic, you have to impose limits on what you will and won't get into as far as something being relevant. So for HRV stuff, I will read electrocardiology papers. I will read signal analysis papers. I won't read anything with cells in it when it comes to trying to support my own work. Some part of me really wants to, but the moment we start talking about cardiac myocytes and the actual the, the, the action of individual cells during depolarization, something in my brain goes... No, stop it. Now, it's not a it's not a conscious decision to be ignorant. It's a conscious decision to try to protect my time. The only way you're ever going to get to continually pushing back the veil of what you think you need to know to understand something, the only way you're going to get to the end of that is if someone pays you to do some really long project that requires you to have a, a really deep amount of understanding uh, behind an individual topic. It is super, much, super difficult to be completely in command of anything. Anything. So, how much are you reading a week? Um, right now, much less than I normally would. I mean, we've said previously oh, we've got strategies and stuff, or we both have uh, we both have Google Scholar alerts. Um, I try to keep on top of things that people mention and talk about. Obviously, people send me things on an individual level. I've found recently that Mendeley has some really, really focused recommendations. And I know they're good because uh, I'm not even sure how I managed to get this. I think it's because I have a, a Mendeley upload library. And it started sending me recommendations for seriously obscure things that I find really, really valuable. And mm. I know it's doing a good job because it's sending me stuff I've already read. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't know that. It's not fucking magic. But it's saying, have you looked at this thing and uh, well, uh, no, like, cardiorespiratory like coordination? I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, I read that probably five years ago. I remember vaguely how it works. How did you know I wanted that? So that is one. I have to take a closer look at the algorithmic basis for how it's doing those recommendations. It may just be smashing citations together, but so far, uh, big thumbs up for that as a kind of a recommendation process. Um, the other th the other thing, I said, I said I had a few things. So this is the last thing I promise. I'm not sure if I, yeah, let's not get into the weeds there. Okay, your senior, the senior people around you, the people who are, let's say, over the age of 40, 45, 50, something like that, they are not they are not in command of the literature the same way you are. They don't have the time. That's not their job anymore. They are not fully staying on top of stuff. Yeah, they're they're probably reviewing grants, which you won't do. Um 
so they're, they're seeing what people are trying, they're seeing what's being formed, they're seeing the ideas that people consider to be current. But when it comes to reading everything that's happening right now and trying to understand the back catalogue of ideas, you are definitely doing more than they are. I definitely read more as a PhD student than I did uh, in my first postdoc. And I definitely read more in my first postdoc than I do now working on various projects and trying to write grants, et cetera, et cetera. This is the kind of shit that's going to go away, right? So the idea of, uh, the idea of someone who's a, a, a professor proper leaning on you like, oh, no one's in command of the thing anymore. Oh, <laughs> it's, it, that's, um, it's somewhat, it's somewhat disingenuous is that, uh, Look, I had an experience with this as a, I deferred when I did way back when I did the postgrad diploma to my original bachelor's degree. You have to do four years, uh, four years study in Australia to um, be considered for the an ongoing programs. So everyone does a, a fourth year in psych, either honors or a grad dip. And I did a grad dip. Um I continually deferred to other people, and some of them had the honesty at some point to simply say, uh, you're the expert now. I go, what do you mean I'm the expert? I'm, you know, my age starts with a two. I feel like I, like, still pick my nose and wear shorts here. This is, I do not feel like the expert. I go, yeah, well, you've read more about this more recently than pretty much anyone else, so we'll defer to you. And I go, wow, okay. But I never forgot the logic of that. They were right. And if I was working with someone who was 10 years younger than me and they were in exactly the same position where all of this stuff was saying fresh, the same would be true. They would be the expert. I would merely be someone with more gray hair who was there at the time. So I hope that's some kind of answer. The question actually continues a little, Dan. I am curious to know if you feel on top of your fields at all and whether you think it's common for researchers to not feel like they have a complete overview. Do you feel on top of your field, Mustard Dan? No. It's not even possible. I feel like I've got an idea of the the history, the key references and important stuff that's coming out. But... um, I think it's just impossible to have a complete overview. What do you reckon? I think you're probably more on top of your field than you think you are. I think you think about issues that are present within the work, as humiliating as it might be that you do, um, in (laughs) in favor of other people's perspective on that. I think your work in a lot of contexts has more more deep understanding and more breadth than a lot of the other equivalent work. So I think you're probably, the, the problem, of course, with the, the more you know is the, the more you understand you don't know. Yeah, so that's it. You, you, you feel you feel as if the corners, the moment you, the moment you open up another, I mean, if you're doing, um, if you're doing the oxytocins, and all all of a sudden you 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 suddenly feel like oh I should know I should know a great deal more about neurology. I, I need to know a great deal more about yeah. how the nasal passage works because we stick things up it. I need to know how Look, oxytocin molecules actually bind to stuff. I need to start knowing the binding affinity of things, and then you realize that you don't know those things. You do know where to look if it ever came to pass. That Look, that's an excellent example. I was doing that exact thing today. Uh, put in a paper and reviewer was like, um, look at these papers that uh, describe how the molecule actually goes down the nasal uh, of olfactory nerve sheath up into the olfactory bulb. And I'm like, I know nothing. But of course, the person who was doing it was obviously an expert in this area because mm. the references they were doing were just home run after home run. Um, and it's, it's incredibly specialized stuff. But- uh, that's 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 totally it. Like, yeah. Would you, you, would never, you think five years ago that you'd ever read an otorhinolaryngological journal? I have read so many of those journals recently, but no, hmm. I would never have thought that. Yeah. Uh, four years ago, and but now it is, but it is, is directly relevant to what you do, but in a way where it would be horrifying yeah. for many people who were doing the research to have to engage with that. 
Do you feel like yeah, I'm absolutely. on? And do you not- feel like I'm on top of my field, Daniel? Yes. Well, that was confident. I I think you have a, a grasp of what's going on, um, particularly because what you bring, you bring a certain a certain type of expertise in, <laughs> into a field that doesn't actually have this this <laughs> doesn't actually have the sort of expertise that's needed. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think that's the benefit of actually uh, having a better understanding of a more basic mechanism, and that bringing bringing that into a field that tends to be more applied. Because a lot of people are doing this applied stuff without actually understanding the mechanism. This happens in oxytocin. This happens in heart rate variability. Um, so it's much easier to go the other way around. And they'll complain. Yeah, it, happens, you, you it, happens how- it happens everywhere in biopsych. I mean, for look for, I th- it really helps. It it really helps when you're a curmudgeonly fuck, because when people do something and it it annoys you, a lot of the time you are motivated not not to go around to the house and uh, dig up all their petunias. You you are motivated to understand the way in which you don't like the thing that you see. So it's possible to do that and be positive about it when you when you see stuff. So being a being a complete sourpuss in a lot of the ways is is really good for understanding understanding the holes in a research environment. I'm sure it's possible to do it with a positive mindset, but I haven't had one of those yet. So, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. So one of the one of the best ways to uh, one of the, with the best ways to feel like you can get behind a large, complicated idea uh, is to go back in time and stick a new personality in where you're motivated to try to kick an idea to death as much as possible. We used to do, the PhD used to do a psychotic amount of reading. And I, I feel like the the trade-off between I, I don't like the idea, especially for junior researchers, of trying to do as much work as possible as soon as possible. If you don't know what you're doing, what happens when you do something for six to nine months, you don't know what the fuck you're doing and you get right to the end. If you get right to the end and it was a terrible idea or there's controls you've forgotten or you don't know how to do the analysis or you're not in command of what's going on, you've lost the fucking time. You can't go back and do a different experiment that's not irreparably flawed have you ever rejected a paper that you've reviewed from someone else's junior on the basis of yeah you shouldn't you just shouldn't have done this experiment in the first place it's potentially uninterpretable like the design yes all the time i feel terrible for those people it's not a matter of it's not interesting enough it's not novel enough it's not carefully conducted enough as much as some of those are shit distinctions to make in the first place it's a matter of I don't think that solved anything. All of the time that went into preparing that, and some of them obviously it's not very much time because they're dreadful, but it's much more common that it's much more common that they are written to a certain standard, referenced, prepared, that all the experimentation was actually done rather than made up in the middle of the night, stopple style. So all of that time has been spent doing nothing but training people. Also probably training them in what not to do. Well, speaking, I of- think you want to. I think you want to get in front. I think the the, the whole the, the the idea that you want to know what you're doing first is undervalued. People are always thinking in terms of how can we turn these students into output. Nah, you want to turn a student into good and we're a, a researcher who who knows the right questions to ask before you start getting them to turn things into output. I know that's for some people that's heresy. They get a PhD student and six weeks later they're chugging away on some preset experiment. But, you know, it's not very respectful of the person. And if I think no. it's disrespectful, trust me, it's fucking disrespectful. <laughs> You're going to teach them to be researchers, not just cogs in a machine. Uh, uh, see, that, you, would, um, you would hope so. That's why That's why the first piece of advice, so, you know, everyone always gives every PhD student and postdoc is choose your laboratory carefully. Yeah. Try to find out what is going to happen to you when you get there. Anyway, we're slightly off. We're slightly off topic now. It's all right. It's interesting stuff. No, I hope so. I, um, 
on that, I actually saw a discussion on Twitter where people were actually saying, oh, I think it's a bit of a problem that um, uh, PIs are purposely sending weak manuscripts out for review, knowing that the peer review, the peer review process will fix it. <laughs> Have you heard this is a thing? What? How, yeah, will, it, how are- will it fix it? What, 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 what point of go back in time and do a different experiment, you klutz, is going to fix a problem? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking about experiment. I'm talking about just how the paper's structured. Da- the data's the data. But I'm talking about how to actually structure the introduction, the conclusion, all those things which can be fixed. And uh, I didn't actually realise this was a thing, that people are submitting stuff that they know isn't their best work. Have you heard of this? No. I haven't. Yeah. Strange. Maybe they came from a different field. I don't know. Well, obviously, that shows a kind of a combination of some form of negligence. And I mean, if the thing's published, if you get reviewers just go, oh, yeah, it's fine. I've had a few of them. Um, Then your shit manuscript makes it into print. Yeah. Um, and then you yeah, oh, this is my finest hour as a student. Well, it's a sack of garbage. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's not very good. Or the other, the alternative, of course, is you end up with a lot of external criticism that didn't have to happen in the first place. Um, neither of which is going to feel amazing for your student. Yeah, I am not at all down with that. Uh, I would hope that there are editors who could read the paper over reasonably quickly and bounce it in the sense of can you go back and write a manuscript rather than what appears to be a pig's morning tea and uh, well, perhaps that, you I've could resubmit ex- it when it isn't a bag of bones? Please, thank you. I've had that experience, of, as, a, <laughs> I've had that experience as a reviewer where I've got sent a paper and the abstract seemed fine, which is why I agreed to review it. But then reading the paper, it's like... No one spent time doing this. And and the worst is when uh, there's been a few instances where there's been a fancy senior author who uh, who's big in the field, not part of that lab, but obviously has been given the guest uh, authorship. The lab, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and the, the, the lab um, just, um, the English of the paper isn't that great. And so when the senior person is uh, a native English speaker, then there's your evidence that they clearly have not even read the paper. When the English uh, is yeah, but shaking, I just realized shaking my head doesn't make a sound. <laughs> no so one can see that, James. <laughs> the sound of shaking my head. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it happens a quite bitch. a lot. Yeah, the, yeah. Guest, guest authors. But on the flip side, I've had people accuse me. Um, I, I've been on, on, on a few papers where the, the names are a little, a little bit on the ethnic side. And, uh, and they've said, please have a native speaker to proofread the paper. <laughs> what? Yeah. Not after the heart. Oh, my God. Uh, see, when I say things like that, I'm definitely, definitely joking. When they say things like that, it is not the same. Oh, oh my man. God. You I think it's happened. Write that badly? Yeah. I, I was, I, yeah. No idea. No idea. So I think it's only happened once or twice. But, uh, um, maybe it's just like a reflex thing. You know? Honestly, it must be. It must be. Like, there was maybe like one, one or two typos, but they were just, yeah. The you know the typical type of when, typos that you get in the when paper. When I've been in that when I've been in that situation because of writing and editing stuff in the rest of my life, one thing that I do do is say explicitly what I feel like should be changed, and I'll go as far as taking a paragraph and rewriting it in a style which is super neutral. And generally with shorter sentences, a lot of people, they want to write sophisticated English, equate sophisticated English with uh, sounding more like rorty in a tumble dryer. And you get these miserable run-on sentences with psychotic bullshit flying left, right and center. Words you'd, words you'd never see outside of the OED. And well, <laughs> So I will go as far as saying like if it's, it would be significantly clear when it's read like this, you don't, I don't, you don't need to be a native English, but you can learn. Maybe it's just a stylistic thing. I mean, you understood enough to write yeah. the fucking thing in the first place, but even even just cutting it down into the ideas that follow sequentially is better a lot of the time. 
I don't think I've ever said, you need to take this to someone who does talking better than you, you pesky little foreign. It's always been a matter of here are the individual things that need to be changed, you know? Gee, I wish more of you did that because a lot lot of it is like improve the tone. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) really? Oh, sorry. It's in E flat and you wanted a fucking G. Is that it? Yeah. Yours improve the tone. It's like saying the vibe of it's wrong. Oh, do you know the what vibe is wrong is with wrong. this paper? It's Marbo. It's the vibe. It's uh, <laughs> it's the tone. Oh, let's We're not talk to about the, tone. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that happens quite a bit. So <laughs> I just wish reviewers actually gave examples like you did. Um, I, I tend to do the same sort of thing as well. Going, you know, um, you, you can you can shorten this or or you can do that. Um, just be be specific because I always think, what if I was actually on the other side? And, um, and and reading these things rather than actually putting vague things out there. Yeah. But let's, people, uh, people, let's move. Has anyone ever pulled you up for writing things that are too convoluted, too sort of too highbrow, a little bit too university? That's absolutely not, not- happened to me. And it's <sighs> stuff that makes it through. But when you get to the end of a manuscript, you don't go back through and you start immediately thinking, oh, I really need to check and see if there's any run-on sentences here. You, you, it, it's, a lot of things do make it under the, the, the barrier of good enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. At some point in time, you've As got a- to stop. And language, language and the paper's internal structure when it comes to the narrative sections are not things that people think of as frontline tasks. Mm. The people see them, as much as they're, they're more important than this, people see them as kind of pain-in-the-ass tasks. Do all the figures look as an R or all the references in? Are we finished actually writing the fucking thing? They don't go, let's go back and try and get fresh eyes and make sure all of this reads beautifully. No I one gives a thing, fuck about that. The worst thing, I occasionally review um, more stricter psychology papers. The introductions are so long. Far out, man. Have you read any of these papers recently? How long the introductions go for? Oh, yeah, I think... You think so? I think in technical... I'm, all, the, the, all the stuff I've been... With a, a few exceptions, so the, the stuff I've done in the relatively recent past is not the kind of... Uh, not the kind of paper that you'd see. So, the introductions are things like, uh, technique ABC exists and technique DEF exists. These are all good, but they can't handle problem G. So we propose solution H. Up yours. Here's some maths. So uh, I'm I don't really see that. Um, certainly, when you read papers rather than reviewing them, sometimes it comes out yeah. of the woodwork. It's like, how yeah. well do you want this thing introduced? <laughs> it's almost a review paper in itself. But that's what that, that's what a review paper is for. Yeah, it might have. Show, show, it show might me the body method. It might have started there. It might have Show started me the method. There. Yeah. Uh, Daniel. Look, l- l- let's go to question three. What was question three that we got? Um, Maybe well, not say the name in case they don't want to, you know. No, 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 no. Question. I was, I was prompted. This is not a question that was asked of us. This is a question that was asked on Twitter that I was prompted to look at. Okay. Um, Public. And where is it? Here it is. There's a question that uh, is in January, actually, that Casper, Casper the Friendly Albers, it's not Albers, it's going to be Albers or Albers, or I'm no idea, I'm being awful, um, I don't know how to pronounce this name properly. Anyway, the Friendly Ghosts did ask everyone of the Twitters, uh, I am invited to review a paper co-written by someone I recently published, but on a totally different topic that will become important in a minute. Is it a conflict of interest to review this paper, or can I assume the editor knows my publication record is public and still decided to invite me? Interesting question. There are layers to this, like ogres. Ogres have layers. Before we get into the question, has this actually ever happened to you? Uh, co-author, yes, but not not close enough where I would consider it to be the same as this. Okay. And I tore that Fair paper enough. up anyway because it was dreadful. <laughs> I think this is a really good question. Um, that happens quite a lot. And as for Has it the- happened to you? 
Yes, and mm, okay. I, in every circumstance that has happened, I've actually told the editor. Um, sometime there was one that was a line ball call, and I emailed the editor going, "Hey, here's here's the situation. Here's how long ago I published with them, and here's the crossover in fields. I want to get your opinion." Editor was like, "Thanks for telling me. No, um, I'm not comfortable with that. Um, it's tr- you're transparent. It's good. That thanks for thanks for emailing me." Um, oh, other ones, and you got out of it completely. Good dodgy. Yeah, knock off, knock off, and go swimming. Because uh, you know, I always think when it, when it comes to these ethical things, I always think to myself wh- whether it's because so many so many times like oh it's a grey area, it's a grey area. But I always think to myself if it somehow got out that I reviewed a paper for this person, what would people say? Would people say that was really dodgy, or would people go nah? That doesn't matter. And for me, if there's any sort of instance of, oh, that was a bit sketchy, that's my ethical line for these for these type of things. Uh, there's been other situations where this is a current or quite a recent collaborator and I've straight out just said, um, uh, no, like I just, uh, I can't review this paper for, for, for this reason. The editor's like, oh, thanks. Because I get the impression that editors don't have the time to actually go through the track records of both the researchers and the person that they're going to be... Um, doing and if a lot of editors unless they're using the track record to pick people in the first place it's not uncommon or unheard of which is some some people make a a reasonably naive assumption that if you published with someone then you will understand their work reasonably well the key point here is someone i published something completely different with i think it's a really interesting point as they say, we're working together on something and then someone sends me one of your one of your love harmonious papers now, obviously, and assume that I was qualified to say anything about that in the first place. And so, well, look, I, we don't have any research crossover on this, but we have plenty of other research crossovers like swearing at each other's faces for, for all of this amount of time. So, but you don't think it's a conflict of interest? Um, yeah, it probably is a conflict of interest. But I, in a situation like this, I'll tell you what I do, and I don't think a lot of people would give this answer. Every review has every review has a section where you make remarks to the editor. Hmm. I feel like most editors are not shotgunning shit out at such a haphazard kind of way. I mean, how often are you sent a paper where you really seriously have no idea about the content of the paper? Pretty much everything I've got from a variety of journals has always been highly focused, man. So like, this specific topic, it feels like he might know. You're obviously not on the Frontiers spam list. I am not. Well, I would get a um, request at least once a week from Frontiers. Oh, my I mean, God. It's, it's it. it's, once a it's, week? It's psychology. It's it's obviously within my broad area, um, but basically the what what happens with frontiers is they have they have these list of, list of reviewers and they automatically send out these emails to forty fifty researchers and whoever bites first will actually become the reviewer. So if you ever get an email back from frontiers going thanks for for considering our thing, but we've already found the reviewers. That's because there's been three other people who have said, "Yep, I'll do that review." The moment wow. I discovered that. Yeah, the moment I discovered that is the moment I actually stopped sending papers to Frontiers because that is just... I don't know. That it doesn't sit right with me. That is bullshit. Please, oh, please correct me man. if I'm wrong. Has but Frontiers I've had a few gotten pe- worse? I do, I mean, when we, we sent them papers originally, what, five years ago or something? Yeah, five years ago. Yeah, I we published- do not. I do not remember this. I feel like this is uh, something just... Something just slipped. I, I honestly, genuinely do not remember the the whole sort of business practice, business case, journal model thing being quite this bad a while ago. And I don't know if it's me being having a rosy look of something that I'd prefer to be good because it makes our papers not published in an embarrassment, or if it's actually gotten worse. I do feel like it's gotten eh, anyway. Yeah, look, um, no one no one spams me with requests. What I was saying was um, most editors make considered decisions like that. If something like that came to me, I would assume they knew. 
So I would do that review and I would write in the comments to the editor only an entirely explicit statement of published A, B, connection C. And then I'm assuming you sent it to me on the basis of the fact that we are connected in the first place. And I want to be completely explicit about this. If you like, then if this is actually a problem for you, forget about it entirely. The other thing is, of course, is that you might have noticed, I trust myself to be critical of the people I work with. Have you ever experienced an instance of me being unduly (laughs) critical, Daniel? Look, you're probably one of the few people where you would actually review my stuff. Um, <laughs> you would probably re- review my stuff critically, but um, <laughs> you're, 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 you're unique. Of its fucking life. <laughs> you're 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 unique, James. You're like a snowflake. There is there is no one in the oh, world. I'm a snowflake. There is not 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 in the um. Anyway, I'm not I'm not going to go there. Um, <laughs> I know what was going to happen there. Yeah. Look, look. There's not many people. I mean, intersectional snowflake. Woo. Yeah. Um, look, I, I I couldn't do that. Um, I would just know that e- even if I was personally being as critical as possible, that there probably would be some biases that would be slipping through. I would give them the benefit of the doubt uh, if if I knew them. So that's just something that I couldn't do. But wouldn't you? Why why go to the trouble of doing that and then sending the editor a, a private message going, "Oh, if you feel this is uh, this this isn't kosher, just disregard it." Why don't Why don't ask the editor in the first place? I would. I would be assuming they asked me for a reason. Do you? I, I don't know because um, being the. Well, you think they're going to get back to you? You think they're going to get back to you yeah. straight away? They're going to go right back immediately. Okay, oh, well, yeah, absolutely. Experience. This is like, but it's just because. See, here's the thing. Now, you because you yourself are an editor. Now, you assume that yeah. everyone else is was as responsible and boy scoutish as you are. No, but listen, if someone can't find, if an editor can't find a uh, reviewers, there are these systems where you, it's very similar to the, um, to the Jane biosemantics website that we've spoken about before. Yeah, yeah. You go to the website, um, but they've got more formal systems where you, you put in the, the, the paper, the abstract, the keywords, and it'll find reviewers for you. As far as I know, these systems don't actually say these people publish together. All it'll say is that based on the keywords, these are the people who have the expertise so that there's no way of knowing um, quite, quite often you're, you're editing or you're editing papers for things that aren't exactly within your subfield. So, you don't know who's publishing with who. So, in these cases, you have to, um, you have to actually rely on these systems don't work. I, I got a system that recommended um, two people from the same institution and you can't do that. You can't have two people re- reviewing from the same institution, but the system just didn't know. But it wasn't until I looked at those things going, hang on a minute, mm. that, uh, that it was potentially an issue. You All need right. some human element. Okay. I don't know. Maybe different uh, editorial. You might, you might, you might have convinced me. Um, it's in general. Um, I've all my review requests in general have come from a, a wide variety of different journals. I mean, lots of uh, psych, engineering, uh, meta science methodology stuff, uh, physio. Physio. Yeah. Physiological measurement, places like that. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, not physiotherapy, fuck's sake. I was like, uh, what are you doing getting into that? <laughs> uh, I don't I don't know. I said, yeah. I'm more on the uh I'm more on the uh supply than the demand side of physical injury. Um <laughs> Yeah, I I do Mm, it's the, the, the every every review request I've ever had has been focused. I think maybe I would have maybe once or twice someone sent me something I'm manifestly unqualified to look at, and mm. I've always assumed it's because the, this may be a totally idiosyncratic experience. I've always assumed that it was because editors were doing their job with regards to who do we get within this specific area 
that they that that made a concerted decision to find the right person. And in general, it means that you can assume if you've got a review request, you just you do just switch straight into the mindset of do I have enough time to do this shit right now? How long are they giving me? Two weeks? Fucking hell! I don't. I, yeah, no. Or oh, it's due in six weeks. Yeah, yeah, I'll have time. You know, probably the night before it's due, but. <laughs> Yeah, the other alternative is that uh, perhaps the authors have actually okay, suggested look, your I name. I see. Sorry? The, the, the authors have may, maybe have actually suggested your name. That would be reviewer. more problematic to me. But also, I mean, I don't think a lot of people are suggesting my name. Really? No. Okay. Would you Would you want me in a bad mood reviewing one of your papers? If I wanted to be correct. Not oh. the... <laughs> Yeah, I I don't think a lot of people are requesting my undivided attention. Look, I uh, think well, it's just I think it's just editors doing public due diligence. But look, I'm final. I'm I'm I am wavering on this now. You you make a a reasonably convincing case, and I'm now not sure. You've partially convinced me. Has this happened before on a podcast? I do get convinced this stuff. You, you do. You're you're, you're, mm. a, you're a reasonable man. In, in sometimes, I prefer, do, do you often I prefer reasonable-ish. Reasonable-ish. Do, do you um often do reviews that are public? Have you done one before? Oh, I'm certain that I have. Uh, I'm not fussed if you know who I am. I, the, I I like to stand behind the idea of being right. I've made mistakes in reviews before. Generally, it's from a – if you've got a 40-page manuscript and they should mention something on page 15 and then you say, why the hell isn't the right thing there? And then later on page 27, it's squirreled away in some corner and you say, oh, why didn't you do the thing? And they go, well, clearly the reviewer didn't read carefully because at the back corner of page 27, the thing is in fact there, somewhat out of context, but it's there. And, you know, you can get that stuff wrong, but – I don't know. I feel like I, I, I wonder what you have to hide if if you have a substantial problem with something. I wonder what you feel you need to hide behind. I mean, will you hurt someone's feelings? Well, it depends on how you are making the argument in the review. Are you ever are people ever couching their language and saying saying something nice? Is it really people like critically reviewing something going, oh, no, this is all dreadful and the authors are a bunch of pricks? Are you never saying happens. are you never saying anything positive around are you never managing how this news is supposed to be received? It doesn't cost money. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't hurt you. It takes a it takes about ten extra seconds and you can't find the correct language to couch criticism in. It's just because of the whole veil of anonymity shuts is that you don't feel the need to be... Look, you can be unvarnished. And it's not even a matter of not being an arsehole. It's perfectly possible to... like. The, I can't remember who told me this, is that you should be able to... You should be able to criticize, some, criticize something for anything and have the other person say thank you. Yeah? That's a, that's a great go- perspective. I I I don't understand I don't understand how this is passing people by. It seems like such an <laughs> obvious way to I mean, obviously I don't rev- uh, review papers in my podcast voice. I don't even I don't even talk to my family in my fucking podcast voice. This is just just just, just, just me. This is the po- whole point of where it's not just you. Let's be perfectly frank about that. <laughs> Yeah. It's anyone else who's wearing a condiment. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's I I I wonder if it, perhaps some of it has to do with uh, English is a second language. Perhaps it's a time thing. If something's wrong, it's just easier to say A B C sucks. Get out of my face. But I don't know. It's be, just become such a habit. Yeah, to not be a cock about criticism. I mean, how would you prefer other people writing to you? How does it take any extra time? What are you? What do you lose? It's it's like it's, this is. I, I wonder if this whole sort of blind review process is is part of 
it, it's the same phenomena as people on the internet. Like if no one's actually there to stand over you and ask you to explain yourself and potentially beat you with a tire iron for an hour and a half because you're such a dreadful human being, maybe the, the moment you take that off, uh, people f- f- feel like they're dealing with abstractions of other researchers rather than actual people. It's not even an well, excuse I'll- not to be a dick. It's like think about how you want it phrased. Now, if you've... If you've done that with all your reviews, if you try to do that with all your reviews, right, then what the fuck do you have to be afraid of? Oh, the famous person is wrong. They're not going to, they're not that petty. They're not been around that long. Maybe some of them are. But seriously, this whole idea that everything needs to be a considered balanced sort of politically motivated decision no one gives a fuck about your gamesmanship just try to do your review in a way where people will thank you for criticism i don't even know if i'm off topic now no that that that's bang on and uh that's a great way and i think it's a it's a a good time to also wrap up the episode as well oh Um, i think we've gone long but we we did get ambitious with three questions so that's fine it's it's um yeah I think I think it works well, but if you do, if you have actually um, taken the taken the challenge and listened to the entire back catalogue, uh, including the chewing the chewing episode, which oh, keeps enough with James the up at night. Chewing, man. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it annoyed someone so much they wrote a review on iTunes going unprofessional. No, it, yeah. unprofessional, uninformed. Uh, I, I'll take unprofessional. That's fine. <laughs> 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 I thought that was one of our cardinal features. <laughs> I know exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a feature, not a bug. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. This is, this is why I've uh, always wondered. Here's a, here's a, a question for everyone, um, for everyone more broadly. Who is our oldest listener? I really want to know. We have such an early career focus and I like that and I this is a conscious decision on both our parts who is our oldest listener I'm very curious to find that out <sighs> so let us know you, if it's you dob yourself in if you know who it is dob them in remember we are watching through your television <laughs> I just I just want to know I'm curious let us know we're going to wrap it up thanks for listening this week uh, and we'll be back again soon with a new episode of Everything Hurts we have some amazing guests lined up as well which you'll hear about in the coming weeks too bye for now toodle oo